Okay, hello everybody. Today is Wednesday, and while Wednesdays are normally the Ask Me Anything, that's the AMA where I respond to your questions and comments, we are doing a different series now on Black Box Online Radio, so this week we will be devoted to the New Orleans Axeman. Yesterday was the first episode, and I decided to title that one The Pre-Introduction, because very simply, I was just, um going through several different sources that I had read and watched and listened to, and I just gave a response to those sources. But today I'm going to be going mostly through some parts of the book by Miriam C. Davis about the New Orleans Axeman. In fact, her title is Axeman of New Orleans, The True Story. The great thing about electronic books is they show up on your devices immediately after you download them. So I've had the chance to read some of her writing, and I think that this will be a more formal introduction as opposed to just talking about the concepts, because I don't know about you, but I definitely had a very minimal understanding of the New Orleans Axeman only until recently, and last time I cited the YouTuber Eleanor Neal who said, wait, that guy's like real? That, that was a real thing? I thought that that was just some type of urban legend or some type of story that was mostly fiction. And to be honest, um, from reading the writings of Miriam C. Davis about the New Orleans Axeman, it seems like there's a lot of fiction that has been blended in to the story. Now, she wants to set the scene by saying that the popular conception of the New Orleans Axeman is that there was a single serial killer who operated in 1918 and 1919 in New Orleans, Louisiana. He was someone who broke into people's homes, used their own axes, viciously attacked people, striking people in the face and on various parts of their body with the axe, and then disappearing into the night. And then he wrote a letter saying that he was the Axeman and he wanted people to play jazz music as some type of bizarre taunt. But I am going to just read a little section here from uh, her book, and then I will, I will respond to it. So, I've been fascinated in a scared sort of way with serial killers. I don't know what moved me to look further into this. I was deep into another topic at the time, it was nothing more than the urge to procrastinate, but look into it, I did, and I found that the New Orleans case involved not Jewish bakers, but Italian grocers. And the preceding paragraph talks about how she's just having a conversation with somebody who said that um, the New Orleans Axeman targeted Jewish bakers. Uh, no, it seems like he targeted mostly Italian grocers, but there are going to be other people who were targeted as well, and people who were not even Italian, of Italian descent at all. So that becomes the framework of the true crime definition of the New Orleans Axeman. Yes, most people, even to this day, think that there was a single serial killer who terrorized New Orleans in 1918 and 1919, and he did just what we said, broke into people's homes, he would remove a panel from the back door, attack people with their own axe, and the explanation that has been provided for that is that it was the easiest thing to find. It's a very easy weapon because almost everybody at the time had a wood-burning stove, and then he would um, viciously strike people, striking them in the face, in the neck, all kinds of, all kinds of vicious attacks. 
But what's really interesting about Miriam Davis's book is that she says that the contemporary image of the New Orleans Axeman goes back to a single source from the 1950s, and the name of it is Ready to Hang by a, a writer named Robert Talent, T-A-L-L-A-N-T, and because he's from Louisiana, New Orleans, it might be pronounced Robert Talon, but I'm just going to say Robert Talent for the purpose of my native English-speaking vocal cords, and Yes, this guy wrote um, not only this book, Ready to Hang, he wrote several books about New Orleans, and I was just messing around on Google a little bit, and I found that he um, wrote a book about voodoo, he has a novel called The Voodoo Queen, those are two separate ones, actually, one's about spiritualism and folklore, and another one's a novel, he wrote a travel book about Louisiana and New Orleans, and he seems like someone who was really caught up in the folklore, very passionate about learning about folklore, mysticism, spirituality, and of course rituals. And then when he put out this book, Ready to Hang, I was just looking at like Goodreads, and they said that this is referred to as his darkest book. But the entirety of the book isn't devoted to the New Orleans Axeman. There's only a single section in the book that is talking about these murders that took place in 1918 and 1919. In the interview that Miriam Davis did on the um, showed most notorious. She said she thought that Robert Talent was um, using a lot of his own memories of growing up because he was from New Orleans and he was would have been a kid at entering preteen years, late um, late childhood thereabouts. So he was probably going off of a lot of his own memories, and that could be why there are. are incidents, and um, there's this recreation that's put forward in his book, Ready to Hang, that isn't completely accurate with what she uncovered going through the police archives. I found in a different source, I want to say it was the New York Times article that I just pulled up about uh, Robert Talent and the New York, <laughs> did I say New York? New Orleans Axeman. Yeah, New Orleans Axeman. New York Times is what I was saying. New Orleans Axeman. And they said that um, they thought that Robert Talent was getting a lot of his information by talking to other people and having casual conversations with other individuals at bars. So a lot of it is word of mouth and, once again, not based on a source documentation. But let's read her section here. Robert Talent was a New Orleans writer and one of the mid-20th century literary greats in that area, according to one reference from a librarian in New Orleans, that he may have got much of his information by hanging out in places and talking to people and sharing conversations. In a chapter titled The Axeman Wore Wings, Talent tells the story on the morning of May 24, 1918, Joseph and Catherine Maggio, Italian immigrants who ran a small grocery, were discovered dead and bloody in their bedroom. They had been assaulted with their own axe and had their throats cut. Nothing appeared to have been stolen. The assailant had gotten away by cutting out a panel in the back door. In the course of their investigation, police found a peculiar message that had been written on the sidewalk near the Maggio's home and grocery. Mrs. Maggio is going to sit up tonight, just like Mrs. Tony. The police remembered that seven years earlier, in 1911, three other Italian grocers had been murdered with an axe. In two cases, their wives had also been slain. Talat gave the grocers' names as Crudi, Rosetti, and Tony Schiambra, S-C-H-I-A-M-B-R-A. I hope I'm pronouncing that right, Schiambra. Was Tony Schiambra's right wife, Mrs. Tony, 
and is that whom was addressed in the sidewalk message talent asked was this a message from the italian mafia and had the couple been slaughtered by gangsters for some unknown reason no one was ever charged with the murders so these questions were never satisfactorily answered now i think that you can get the idea from what she had just posted there number one could this be some type of serial killer who is killing for the sake of killing killing because of getting revenge on society getting revenge on these people who are of italian descent getting revenge on people who work in the grocery business and uh, miriam davis also hypothesizes that the Axeman may have had some type of personal history with Italian grocers, or he may have had some type of personal history with some type of shopkeeper of Italian descent. Maybe a bad experience happened, and that triggered this type of animosity, and that he did indeed commit this series of crimes in 1911, and then he was either incarcerated, or as I propose in the pre-introduction, that he could have been incarcerated and maybe even been sent overseas for the Great War, World War One, and then came back because of 1918, 1919 is really approaching the end of World War One. So there could be something to that effect. And then once he's back in New Orleans, he starts killing again. Or, or, we also have another very viable possibility and that is that somebody is breaking into people's homes, mostly of Italian descent, mostly working in the grocery business. Could this be something to do with organized crime? Maybe somebody didn't pay a debt or somebody didn't pay a bribe. Someone just wanted revenge. Someone's not cooperating. Somebody's not doing what these organized criminals expected them to do. So they were retaliated by murdering them. And there's even going to be a theory that we're going to see that not only are they going to say that there's a single killer, but the single killer is simply the hitman for the mafia. And we will even identify him by name later on in the series. I think that that guy deserves a whole episode devoted. So, I mean, you can see there's intersection and overlap. Some people are like, okay, well, um, it's the mafia and organized crime. Other people are like, no, no, it's a serial killer. And then there's the kind of thing in the middle. Yeah, one person is committing all these crimes, but he's doing it on behalf of the mafia. And we'll always bear in mind that there's the possibility of a media hoax, that maybe there are different perpetrators who are working on behalf of some criminal organization, and the media is trying to make people think that um, there is one single perpetrator but I do also have to point out that it just really is fascinating how many times you will encounter this when looking at literature or mysteries, that everything you know about the case is from one single source, and then it turns out that, well, maybe the actual history is a little bit different. Let's go on to something else that she has written here. The next month, Louis Bessemer, a Polis grocer, and Harriet Lowe, the woman who he lived with, at the time, were also attacked with an axe and seriously injured. And as she identified there, Louis Bessemer is a Polis grocer. And when I was listening to a podcast, people were referring to him as Louis Bezume, because once again, it's New Orleans, French Louisiana. But um, it says very clearly here, he is Polish, and Miriam Davis also pronounces his name Louis Bessemer. That goes to show us that it's not only Italians. So, um, to think that there is somebody out there who just simply hates Italian people is, well, that theory is looking a little bit weaker, especially when we go through the entire suspect list. And Harriet Lowe, the woman 
is the other woman also not Italian, to the best of my knowledge. And again the weapon had been the grocer's own axe. Again a door panel had been removed, and again nothing was reported stolen. This time the victim survived, at least temporarily, and Lowe, who had changed her story several times, accused Louis Bessemer first of being a German spy, and later having tried to kill her. When she died of her wounds two months later, Bessemer was charged with murder. Oh, I was um, reading something about her um, yesterday, and uh, I, I don't want to say some things that aren't in front of me because I can't recall the exact so source. I was reading this in an article, but um, I will share, you, I'll share with you the things that I definitely heard from 13 o'clock about this case. The authorities went through Louis Bessemer's personal belongings, and they found letters that were written in multiple languages, German, Russian, and Yiddish. You'll frequently hear that he had writings in the German language, but that's what they said, German, Russian, and Yiddish, and then they began to suspect that he was a spy. I mean, it says he's of Polish descent, and I mean, you gotta think that he has some familiarity with East European languages, and there's a certain amount of Russian speakers in Poland as well. Of course, Yiddish would be there. Poland is on the border of Germany. And, I mean, people can learn languages and not be a spy. Or, I mean, it's not even saying that he's fluent. It says that he has letters in his possession there that were found in his belongings, which I believe is something like a trunk or a large box that had these letters in them. But the thing that I didn't want to speculate too much about, and I will correct myself if I encounter this exact detail, is I think I was reading that um, that uh, Harriet Lowe would get um, attacked, and then she accuses um, Louis Bessemer of being the person that attacked her. She recants that, but her face is partially paralyzed, so she undergoes an operation to try and revitalize the muscles in her face, and there were complications from that operation that led to her death. Now, that's the thing that I might have to self-correct later on, So, um, because I, I de definitely read that about one of the victims. I think that was about her. The point is that it wasn't even the axe man that actually ended up uh, taking her life. It was just the situation in general. Over the next 14 months, the killer nicknamed the Axe Man by the press racked up a litany of victims. Mrs. Edward Schneider, well, I mean, does that sound Italian to you? August 5th of 1918, she survived. Joseph Romano, Charles Rosie, Mary Cordomiglia, Steve Boca, Sarah Lauman, and Mike Pepitoni. And um, we got all kinds of names here. Rosie, we got, um, that's spelled R-O-S-I-E. Then we have... Laumann, um, Schneider, definitely some strong German names in that. So we have one guy of Polish descent and some names of German descent. So I don't think this whole ethnographic, ethnocentric, discriminatory serial killer angle is going to hold up too much, but I'm always open to persuasion, and I'm really not sure what to make of it this early on in the series. In almost all cases, the MO was the same. Cut out the back door panel, use the victim's own axe, abandon the weapon at the scene, and nothing was stolen. Most but not all of the victims were Italian grocers. Yeah, but as we said, not all. Fear of the axemen paralyzed the immigrant community. Some terrified Italians couldn't sleep at night without posting guards to stand watch. Phantom axemen were seen everywhere. Stories circulated about grocers walking off to find a door panel chiseled off and an axe outside the door. Louis Bessemer was acquitted of Harriet Lowe's murder, but the... But his w w was not the only trial. 
Rosie Cortemiglia accused two neighbors, elderly grocer I. Orlando Giordano and his son Frank of having attacked them and killed their two-year-old daughter out of a business rivalry, even though her husband Charles testified that the killer had not been either man. Father and son were convicted of murder, and 18-year-old Frank was sentenced to death. Later, Rosie admitted that she lied because she hated the Giordanos. Even just reading that little sentence there, and I know you can't just explore the true crime world purely based on reading a single sentence, but even just reading that, I was like, I don't believe that. Especially if she is attacked by someone whom they have a business rivalry with, and then the other person who is involved in said business rivalry, I mean, is going against her. I mean, even though her husband Charles testified that the killer had not been either man, yeah, that doesn't sound like someone who is actually, actually involved with this. That sounds like somebody is making it up out of spite or because of a personal vendetta. I mean, why would the why would the husband lie about that? So total gut instinct is like, no, these people didn't do it. And furthermore, I mean, the Axeman murders are unsolved. If there were a conviction in this, I think that that would greatly alter the course of history, that if these two people, this father and son team, the Giordanos, were found guilty, okay, well then they they were found guilty and these, these wouldn't be treated as unsolved cases. So that's another strike against them. And... Rosie admitted that she lied because she hated the Giordano. She did it out of spite. I think you can see where this is going. Shortly after the court of Migley attack, the New Orleans Time, Pika Yoon, Pika Yoon, interesting name for a publication, received a letter purporting to be from the murderer. He was a failed demon from the hottest hell. It would descend on New Orleans the coming Tuesday night, looking for a victim, spurring anyone listening to jazz. Talent reported that the designated evening, March 19th, was St. Joseph's Night, and the loudest and most hilarious of any and all on record. And if you would like to hear a dramatic reading of that, you can go back to the pre-introduction if you haven't heard it yet. But mostly, when I do like an ongoing series here on this channel, you can listen to the episodes in any order. So it's another good reason to like and subscribe. Now, um, Miriam Davis has also noted two other publications that she highly recommends here. One is called Blood Letters and Bad Men by crime writer J. Robert Nash. And then another one is called Hunting Humans, the Encyclopedia of Serial Killers, Volume 1 by Michael Newton. And that shows that, um, well, it's, she, she says that Michael Newton has investigated the claims that were made by this guy, Robert Talent, in about the murders that occurred in 1911. Even to this day, we are unsure if it's the same serial killer or two serial killers, or the same mafia hitman, or is it just a different group of mafia hitmen, plural? But he, he went through the city records. They were talking about the murders of Cruti, Rossetti, and Schiambra, that one that I couldn't pronounce earlier, S-C-H-I-A-M-B-R-A, Schiambra, and there is no record of any Italian grocers that had been killed in the year of 1911 by an axe or anything else in at that time. So that's another strike. But um, that that's a strike against Robert Talon's reporting. However, that doesn't necessarily mean that he was getting the information from nowhere. As we said, he could have been learning about this from people having conversations at bars. He also could have been going off of... Um, memories and uh, of, of his own experience as a kid living in New Orleans. 
but um or i mean there is always the possibility that he fabricated this i mean he passed away i think he passed away in 1957 but don't quote me on that i was just looking at um some websites about him earlier Okay, so let's go back to the book. I had an opportunity to check out some of these questions in the early 2000s after I became interested in the Axeman case. At the time, my husband and I visited New Orleans twice a year. On one of our visits, I popped by the French Quarter City Archives, located in the public library conveniently across Canal Street in the Central Business District. I discovered, while no Crudi, Rossetti, or Schiambra had been murdered that year, a sleeping Italian grocer named Joseph Davy had been. His skull had been fractured and his wife had been cut up in the middle of the night. That's such a basic fact about the case, and no one had discovered it. It was so easily discoverable, and it had been missed, and that suggested that the story had never been properly investigated. But um, I think that you can see what her uh, conclusion there is that, okay, there were real attacks that happened in 1911. There's a real Axeman attack going on. Now, is this the same person? Well, if you, you go back to the pre-introduction, you'll say that uh, you'll hear that I, I talked about how Miriam Davis believes yes, and the psychological profiler agrees with her. But also, thirteen o'clock brought up how different murders have been happening like this all over the country. They pointed out that one in Louisiana happened in 1909. One happened in San Antonio, Texas in 1913. A family is just attacked by some guy with an axe. And then frequently throughout the 1920s, there were murders in Georgia, the Atlanta Ripper murders. And just some other sources that uh, Miriam Davis wants to recommend to us. One is by someone named Kevin McQueen, and it's called The Axe Man Came From Hell. And that is um, a chapter that he has in a larger book. And another one is by Gary Christ, K-R-I-S-T. It's called Empire of Sin. And she says, if either narrative had been available when I first read about the Axeman, I might never have written this book. So just some other things that um, we can use in this ongoing series. And if you guys want to um, get a jump start on this, you can have a read on that for yourselves. Empire of Sin and the Axeman came from hell. But um, Miriam Davis does say both works are incomplete, and they don't answer the questions that she wants to answer. At the end of this early section in the book, there's a list of questions that has been posted, and because this is Wednesday and Ask Me Anything Wednesday, now, the first question that is asked, were all the killings named by Robert Talent actually Axeman crimes? I mean, I'm just starting the book, I'm just starting this series, and we're going to be using many other sources, not just... um. Miriam uh, Davis's book, but it's very good to use such um, a lengthy and detailed and authoritative book on the subject to uh, to have our beginnings here. I'm really going to lean toward no. If I'm going with my gut instinct, or what is it called like when you make like a prediction or something, but you're making a prediction in like a somewhat of an educated guess kind of way, I'm going to expect that not everything that Talon said was correct and that not all of these crimes that we're going to hear about were committed by the same person. I don't want to be like somebody who's just going to be like, oh yeah, anytime there's an unidentified serial killer that operated in a short span of time, well then it's a media hoax. But, I mean, I'm definitely suspicious of that with Jack the Ripper, to a certain extent with the Zodiac Killer. However, with the Zodiac Killer case, you can make a much stronger argument and interpretation of the evidence that there was a single perpetrator or real group of connected murders 
with the axe man though this seems so flimsy because one thing i'm noticing is that okay you have this message that's written on the sidewalk saying okay she'll sit up like mrs tony well what does that even mean i mean that might have had a certain meaning to somebody but it's definitely not like a blatant threat where someone's like I am too clever, methodical, and calculating to be captured. It's not really conveying something like that, and as I pointed out in the pre-introduction, the letter that was supposedly written by the Axeman seems to draw heavily upon Jack the Ripper. It's this whole notion of how um, there is this uh, spirit from hell who is now going to wreak havoc on the population, and that... Um, he is better than everybody else, and, you know, he might even be trying to pass himself off as some type of aristocrat. But my gut instinct is that uh, not all the killings named by talent were actually Axeman crimes. And there may even be genuine mistakes in that chapter from his book, Ready to Hang, because as they pointed out, they're having difficulty very verifying that some of those crimes, such as the 1911 murders, even happened. Or maybe he got the names wrong. Did the Axeman murders begin with the murder of Joseph and Catherine Maggio? Um, well, if it's a media hoax, then the answer is no. I mean, it's a media hoax. None of them were the Axeman. It was somebody else. Now, it sounds like similar crimes are definitely happening in New Orleans, and if it's the mafia theory, then no, the Maggios won't, wouldn't be the first. This would be an ongoing series of murders. It just got presented to us as a single killer. Or maybe, yes, indeed, there is a single killer that operated in uh, beginning in 1918. Was the mafia involved? Well, I can see how people would think that. Even as an absolute newcomer, you know, we're doing like, this is part one and a half. I mean, pretty much in an introductory phase. Yeah, it seems like a solid explanation. The mafia is murdering people because of something to do with organized crime. Maybe they didn't pay a debt, they didn't pay a bribe, they wanted to get revenge, they didn't do what the mafia wanted, so they retaliated. And the media is making it look like there is a single killer, or maybe they have a single mafia hitman. I guess I would say it's possible, and I don't want to rule it out completely. Were all the victims Italian? Well, no. I mean, you just, I mean, this, uh, this, exact same chapter in the book lists one of them very clearly as Polish, and as I read off uh, some other names that were not um, Italian either. And if they were, why did they target them? I says, why did he target them? Excuse me, talking about the New Orleans Axeman. Well, certainly not all the victims were Italian. I mean, Louis Bessemer and Harriet Lowe don't seem to be Italian either. And also, think about those um, letters that were found in the possession of Louis Bessemer. Yiddish... Russian and German. There's not even an Italian connection there. If he had like this trunk full of Italian writings, you could be like, all right, well, he's doing something with the Italian mafia. But um, that also doesn't be the case. So I think for once I can give a solid answer. No. Why did Rosie Cordomiglia accuse Frank Giordano and his father of murdering her daughter? Did she later change her story? Well, yes, you said very clearly that she did it because she um, had a personal vendetta against them. Or Maybe maybe she had convinced herself that they were guilty, because this does happen in the true crime world. Someone is so convinced, like, I know, I just know that he did it. He, he, he's so terrible, he's so evil, I just know it has to be him. Maybe she had even convinced herself, even though she knew she didn't have the evidence, and then there's cognitive dissonance and so on. Dissonance, excuse me, not cognitive dissonance, dissonance. 
Did Esther Pepitoni murder the prime suspect, Joseph Mumfrey? We haven't talked about him in this episode, but I mentioned him in the pre-introduction. Uh, yes, he is the prime suspect. And I talked about how Esther Pepitoni was the wife of the final victim. And I believe she had even remarried at the time, or she was using a different name. She was using the name Esther Albano. And 13 o'clock brought up the point that, that no, I mean, I will just, just um, breeze through this one. No, that that was a pure story of fiction, that this whole thing about Joseph Mumphrey goes out to California, and then Esther Pepitoni followed him out there once, and she confronted him. You murdered my husband, and then she killed him in some type of revenge act. They're like, that was investigated and determined to be a blatant fabrication, or it's simply not true. Was Joseph Mumphrey the Axeman? Well, we'll have to answer that question in a different one. He is the prime suspect, and in terms of the media and of literature. How do the answers to these questions help one understand what it was like to live in New Orleans during the Axeman's reign of terror? Oh, I can I can tell you that. It doesn't. How does it help? It doesn't. I have no idea what it would be like living in New Orleans under the Axeman's reign of terror. I mean, because we're going at this story with all of these filters. And as I said... I mean, they just reported that that story about um, Esther Pepitoni murdering Joseph Mumphrey is not real. It's fictitious. Well, what other details are fictitious? And I would say that even if there is this type of media hoax out there that um, is putting out this message that there's this serial killer who's targeting Italians or Sicilians or shopkeepers, greengrocers and all that, yeah, if you're Italian, Sicilian, a shopkeeper, or a greengrocer, yeah, you probably would be a little bit on edge. But if you're not, and I am none of those things, um, well, would I have been a, would I have been a, a likely target? I mean, anything's possible. As we said, Louis Bessemer was Polish, and Harriet Lowe, and one of the victims was named Lalman and Schneider. Okay, there are other victims who are not Italian. So I I don't think I have a single ounce of comprehensive understanding about what it was like to live in 1918 New Orleans because I can't trust the sources. As of, as of now, this is still like part one and a half. Uh, oh, yeah, I was actually thinking about titling yesterday's episode part zero. You ever see that with like comic books about, you know, the episode, issue number one, right? But they do like number zero sometimes, which is it's a prequel, and I guess it's canon to the story to a certain extent, but it's also just, um, like, forgive the expression, but having a laugh. I think, like, the cartoonists and the, um, the writers and the, uh, like, you know, the inks and pencils teams are just, like, having a laugh, more or less, or they're trying to, uh, take a lot of creative liberties and number zero and so on. So with this one, number one, I'm definitely getting the vibe that the mafia in New Orleans is doing a lot of nasty things. I'm getting the gut instinct that the media is not telling the truth because they don't have the internet. They don't have anyone walking around with, like, some type of smartphone recorder making little videos and audio recordings of what people are saying. It was easier to lie back then. I'm very skeptical of all of these accounts. But I'll give you Miriam Davis's final thing here. In the course of my investigation, I discovered that the talent 
uh, story was wrong in many details, some unimportant, some not. At the end of the Axeman War Rings, he wrote, It is extremely doubtful that anyone will ever know more about whether or not Joseph Mumfrey, the prime suspect, was the Axeman. He was wrong about that. And please tune in for the next episode when we can talk more about this, and I'd love to go through some of those other sources provided by Miriam Davis. This is mostly responding to her prequel, or um, the introductory events that she lays out in her book. So I um, would just like to give um, a big thank you to her, Miriam C. Davis, and she wrote the book story of The, the Axeman of New Orleans, A True Story, which you can get on Amazon.com. Now, what do you think so far? Is there a particular theory that you're going with? Do you think that this is an ethnic discrimination case and a serial killer is targeting people because he has, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. I was about to say an axe to grind against Italian grocers. I can't believe that came to mind and I said it anyway. Or do you think that this is the mafia? Do you think that this is a different type of um, serial killer? What do you think's going on? Please feel free to share any introductory opinions or observations or complain about my uh, mishmash recording. Do whatever you like here, and uh, as I said, you can like and subscribe. Follow the show on Instagram at BlackboxNet88, Blackbox Online Radio, available on Facebook. Anybody can write the show at BlackboxOnlineRadio at AOL.com. You can also visit Amazon.com and not only get Miriam Davis's book, but also Killer on a White Horse by me, Ned DeHaan. It is a novel murder mystery but there's also the Teespring page where you can look at some of the merchandise. And remember, being weird is not a crime. I'll see you over on Instagram for the bonus podcast. Until next time.